millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonic Wars pod. Thank you this so is... much. It's such a delight to be here. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. You no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, no, we're, we're going to leave that in because there you go. You <laughs> don't normally get that level of enthusiasm <laughs> on this show. Um, as you can tell, today's going to be slightly different and really quite exciting. We have a historian, writer and documentary presenter with us who has worked on quite an impressive array of shows. She's looking really quite embarrassed, but I mean, this is only going to get worse for her. Um, so your ears are going to be burning by the end of this. <laughs> that CV includes History Hit TV, where she was presenter and writer, mm-hmm. Channel 4 and the BBC. She's the founder of Young Trust, which aims to make the National Trust more accessible to those aged 18 to 25. She is what I'm going to call the queen of history TikTok. <laughs> Um, and author of Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London, which currently is the number one bestseller in the Napoleonic history section of Amazon. And that sound that you can hear, folks, is all of my history writer fans turning green with envy. (laughs) It is one of the most hotly anticipated books of the Napoleonic era due out this year. Alice Loxton is in the house. Alice, welcome. I was going to call you Empress of History TikTok, but that would imply Bonapartist tendencies. So I can <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take either one. I'll be an empress if if, if that's going. No, well, that would make you, you self proclaimed empress of TikTok, which is very Napoleon esque. <laughs> I'll happily I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> empress or queen. It's either way. It's very kind of you, Zach, and it's delight to be here. So full disclosure before we start, and regular listeners of this show will be very familiar with this. I have a deep love of caricatures and there is this slight danger that I could turn the next hour into me just sort of fangirling over James Gilray and his unquestionable genius I will not have that genius question apart from maybe by you because you know you are the expert you have written the book on it (laughs) but before we get into the people behind the industry of caricatures I'm just curious about the why of this one because I've I've loved caricatures for about a decade And I've always thought there's a need for a book like this. And I've always thought, yeah, but that's sort of the book that you write three or four books into your career. So to go and do this as your first (laughs) book is a seriously ballsy move. Um, So massive respect for it. What made you decide to do this one first? Thank you. Well, I mean, the idea came when I was a university student. I was writing my dissertation on Gilray, really within a course of uh, learning about just the late Georgian period. And as I was writing this dissertation, I was really shocked when it occurred to me that actually hardly anyone knows who these people are. And that doesn't really add up to how important and how influential they were. And although there's been many books, you know, academic books, um, gallery books, you know, 50 pound coffee table books, there have been those, but 
there's never been a book that I can see that's for the general reader. So we're talking a reader who doesn't know perhaps who George III is or Napoleon. Um, I know that, <laughs> that that idea might not not sit happily with you, Zach. But, you know, um, there are... And, and I just wanted to write a, a very basic introduction to what who these, who these satirists were. Um, and... This is very much scratching the surface. It is very much the tip of the iceberg, but uh, it is really just an introduction. And I hope I have done something in, you know, I hope when people read this book, they they go away and they read all the other books that exist around the subject, or they, you know, go and learn a lot about it or go to an exhibition or, you know, start it starts their interest in, in Gilray and Co. And this is just just the beginning, really. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But also what I, I think is great about the book, and I saw a preprint version of this, is that you've written it in the same way that you present. You know, there's none of the sort of, it, it's, it's. I read it and went, I can hear you physically saying this, sitting at the <laughs> keyboard. It's completely kind of Alice Loxton in its style, which I think is fantastic because there is that tendency to either go very kind of heavily art history with these. And art history is fantastic and fascinating. It's also something I'm grossly ignorant of, full full disclosure there. But it does have a certain style to it that sometimes is a bit of a barrier to mm -hmm. people. And equally, if you go full academic history, then you get into kind of these big ideals and then that sometimes puts people off. So I think this is going to really hit the spot in terms of getting people into them. And you picked a great medium, right? Because and this next question that I've prepped is rather leading because I, I was going to ask, <laughs> why is it that caricatures from this period are so iconic? I suppose it's worth kind of asking, are they iconic? Because you've got a lot of good paintings from this period, you know, whether it's your Davids uh, of Napoleon, whether it's sort of later depictions, um, your your pictures are of um, Scott's Greys and the, the British squares at Catra Bra. Um, you've got some brilliant artworks out there. I just think caricatures are better. Now, I, I'm guessing that perhaps you, you, you're inclined to hear that argument out, but what do you think it is that kind of grabs people about these? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are some of the greatest artworks, definitely of that age and definitely within British history. If we were writing a book of the history of art in Britain, I think they would be a, a big part of them, a, a big part of that. And of course, it's at the time who you've got to compare it with really is Reynolds, because Reynolds um, was the person who was teaching at the Royal Academy schools at the time, who has sort of established the Royal Academy. And that is the path that Gilray and Ronanson should have taken. They should have ended up painting big grand paintings, you know, adorning stately homes. And they didn't. So Reynolds is kind of the comparison that I've looked at a lot. I think um, your question, why why haven't they... Or why are they so iconic? There are several reasons. Firstly, Gilray and Ronanson were very well educated in creating art, shall we say. You know, they were educated to make these grand paintings. So that meant that they could, they understood perspective. They understood how to depict people. They could draw a portrait. So they could draw from life. Um, but also they understood classical meaning. They understood they understood politics. They were also, you know, very well read. Gilray grew up in a Moravian household, so they really valued education. So they were very well educated, both in a wider sense, but also they were very good at their craft. And what, you know, you would expect is they'd go on and they become portrait painters or they, you know, sculpt great marble, <laughs> you know, classical heroes. But actually what they do is they apply these, what we would call high skills, high art skills to what is considered to be low art, so satire. So what this means is that it creates this new kind of art in that it elevates what is considered low art to a new level. And that's this kind of middle ground. So that's why for the first time these satires that you buy on the street become really really good because the best people in you know the country are applying their skill to it I suppose you could consider it if you know perhaps if someone like I don't know a great a great modern artist say David Hockney or something suddenly designed your powerpoint presentation you know it's like elevating something from completely different fields to, to another level um, but also I think and, and I think Gilray was really really exceptional as a as an artist he had an amazing vision he was very clever he was very surreal 
And so I would really pick that out. But also the content that they were dealing with was amazing. This was a period with some of the most Shakespearean epic characters. I mean, Pitt versus Fox, George III versus George IV, you know, people like Napoleon coming in and then these epic battles and you know, very dramatic, terrifying events, French Revolution, the king turning the, you know, causing the Regency crisis with his madness. Um, as well as also living in this incredibly raucous world of Georgian London, where people really lived life to the full. And, um, you know, it, it, there was a there was a lot of content to work with, basically. So for all those reasons, I think it creates this amazing art where, you know, it's just it is iconic and, and it's still pretty iconic to this day. Yeah, you've perfectly encapsulated why I love Gilroy so much, because it's it's so vivid. You know, there are other caricatures. There are even contemporaries of Gilroy, not just sort of Rowlandson's uh, and and the rest of it. But there are some who are doing this in a very sort of crude kind of way. And the jokes aren't that dissimilar. You know, the buttock jokes are, <laughs> are very much the key um, to yeah. some of these caricatures at times. Um, and yet it's just better when it's done by Gilray. It's just more vivid and visceral and... Uh, genuinely, there is an art form to it. There is a kind of a beauty in a fully coloured print done oh, by yeah. Gilray that Definitely. just doesn't translate into some of the others. Well, I think the way that you can test it is that if you look at a, some Gilray prints, and I've looked at them obviously a lot, but if you look at them, you you know you sort of think about them, and that some of them really stick in your mind. Like a, that's a really powerful image that you keep thinking about, or or even when you first see it, it's just very striking. And when you think that we today are used to everything that 3D or animation or Photoshop has thrown at us, we've seen all of those movies, we've seen every kind of, you know, visual design, and yet Gilray's work is still striking. And that really, I mean, that really shows how powerful it is in that people who were seeing, who were seeing it in the 18th century weren't used to anything that we're used to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think at the time they were exceptional and, and people recognised them for that. They have a real slap in the face quality to them, don't they? What would you say are people's misconceptions when it comes to these? Well, lots of people will first off ask, oh, but they were very, very crude, weren't they? And there were lots of very, there was lots of kind of pornographic content in them. They were either very grotesque or they were... Uh, pornographic or very very rude and vulgar so that's what lots of people think about them when they first think of them and that is in many ways true but the problem is that there are so many prints that they created like thousands even the British Museum collection there's thousands of prints and you know it's not just Gilray, Rowlandson and Crookshank I've had to kind of you know, simplify it so that people can engage, really. But there were loads of, there's all kinds of artists working at this time. And actually, it's very diverse. And they were making all sorts of prints about every aspect of life. Um, I suppose, you know, people sleepwalking, people sneezing, people taking snuff, uh, falling asleep at home, falling asleep at church. Uh, every, you know, every aspect of the folly and foible of human life was captured on on, on these prints. And to to think that, they are just one, you know, to, to label them in certain ways is incorrect because actually it's much more diverse than than what people generally generally perceive. Um, you know, and some of them are really beautiful. Some of them are quite coarse. Some of them are a bit grotesque, but lots of them are very, you know, family friendly humor as well. So so it's 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 much more interesting, I think, than people originally think. Yeah, the ones that I particularly love. I mean, my thing is crime and punishment as again, regular listeners of this show will know because I won't shut up about it. Um, but what what amazes me is that even what's going on in the military courts ends up being depicted in caricature. And, you know, talking about falling asleep at home or in public, falling asleep in court, you know, a slightly problematic thing when you're judging a case uh, <laughs> is one of the things that he, he throws in there. Um, but with a sort of discerning eye for reality as well, mm -hmm. because it, it was absolutely a problem sometimes. You know, that, that was a thing that happened because officers just wouldn't shut up in their defences. The thing that has often, well, I, I don't know if it's irritated me, but I've wrestled with this question. I'm still not sure I've ever 
put together a convincing argument or quite got to the bottom of it is this idea that they're only designed for the rich and famous, which I've never entirely bought, partly because they're visual media. So you don't need to be able to read, which helps. Um, they're also <laughs> publicly displayed. You know, it's not just that you buy these things. They end up in shop windows. They end up in barber shops. We're talking about, you know, sort of the course and the crude. They end up in, in privies and brothels and, and things. So they, they're they in places where everybody can engage with them. Now, I'm open to a counter argument, but I'm curious what your take is on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say that they are very much for everyone. That is the that is the beauty of them, that they were. So the way that they were produced is that they were created by print shops. So people like Hannah Humphrey and actually many other women owned these print shops. And they ran this mini empire, which would involve commissioning the prints, talking to the artists about what prints need to be made. Perhaps they might even own some of the materials within the shop and they or they would even print some of the prints in the shop or you know it was a very fluid process perhaps they had the rooms upstairs as well um and it's very hard to know whether they were um you know how what the discussions were like whether they were just commissioning or whether someone like Gilray you know they knew each other so well that they would talk about it all the time a bit like people commissioning newspaper articles today and so they would so people like Hannah Humphrey would commission the prints but they would be on sale in the print shop. So they were quite a luxury item. You know, you'd only be able to afford them if you were wealthy and you would go in and you would be schmoozed on a nice sofa and Hannah Humphrey would come over and say, oh, what an excellent choice you've made there, sir. You know, this would look very well in your print room in whatever park you've got in Gloucestershire or something. Um, you know, and so the wealthy would come and buy them and they might display them at home in their own print rooms or they might keep them in their own drawers or they might have them they might hire them out for a ball for an evening so that people could look at them whilst they're in between the dances but it was also and and on that we know that you know quite significant people Charles Fox or uh, the members of the royal family bought the prints themselves so certainly it was enjoyed by the very highest level of society but these prints were also displayed in the print shop windows so these are kind of you know some of the finest kind of artistic creations of the day these were not kind of down and out prints or hack work this these were incredibly well delivered uh, pieces of art by people who were educated by the royal academy schools and they were displayed in the print shop windows bow windows of london and these here anybody could come and see them and this was the real scene this was the real display and this is the equivalent of you know we think about people going to the National Gallery today to look at great paintings. Well, this is the, the, the this was the equivalent of the day that people could go to these print shop windows for free and just look at these prints and enjoy them. And we know that people did do this and we know that there was a huge appetite for this because every single time a new print was put up, the appetite for a new one was described as insatiable. Crowds gathered around the windows the, the a visitor described it as madness when a new print appears and so and, and we know that people were standing there and they were laughing and people were being crushed up against the window and people even got injured because of the the new prints going up so it was definitely something you know that was enjoyed by all aspects of society and as you say you could enjoy them on different levels so you could enjoy them even if you couldn't read they were visually quite funny but also there were these other levels of jokes you know perhaps more nuanced perhaps more little details in the corners and perhaps they would be enjoyed more by the people who own them who would look at look at them with their friends in their own houses but it was definitely a type of art which was really um, did reach all kinds of people in all aspects of society. And that's why it was so powerful and effective, because it did actually make a difference. It wouldn't have been effective if it was only enjoyed. It wouldn't have been effective if it was a print about the Prince Regent and it was only enjoyed by the Prince Regent's friends. Like it just it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked or it wouldn't have meant anything really. Um, so, yeah. That's the that's that <laughs> definitely definitely a mix of, of people enjoying it. I mean, this is always the thing that I've argued with, with when it comes to caricatures and, and people kind of saying, mm, but, you know, they're, they're designed for the upper classes. It, yes, but there's always a point that these things have got to sell. They're a business venture. There's an investment. We'll talk about the production process in a second, but it's, it's not simple and cheap. You know, these are 
things that are painted by hand and they mm -hmm. that takes time and manpower um but i love that the more that you spend time with these the deeper the layers of meaning and you sort of notice the little this is why i love gilray particularly because yeah. there are as you say there are layers upon layers and the little things start to then come to the fore and as you say i mean we've even got caricatures of people looking at caricatures yeah. you know, it's, it's like the goggle box of, of 18th century i'm thinking um very slippery weather by gilray yeah. where yeah. he's yeah. he's taken the the snapshot outside mrs humphrey's shop um where his prints are are being viewed and it's it's a brilliant moment where you can look at a caricature and see other caricatures inside the caricature and go that's a Gilray I've seen that it it's so I mean I'm, I'm with you I'm sold on this <laughs> Great. Um, we should talk about some of the big names here shouldn't we because we we've dropped some names already and these people are characters in and of themselves uh, so I mean let's start with Gilray give us a flavor of what he was like as a person so Gilray was a Londoner. He was born in London in Chelsea. At that point, was a little village on the a few miles out from the centre of London, and he ended up there because his father was a veteran of the Battle of Fontenoy and he'd been injured, so he ended up near the Chelsea Hospital. And so they were living there, and um, I think that's an interesting, an important point because his father had been involved in you know military campaigns, and in that kind of is interesting for for Gilray's idea about Britain and things like that. But he grew up in this Moravian household. So his parents were Moravian. And this is also important because not only did they value education, so Gilray himself was very well educated, and but they also had quite a cynical view of life in that they basically believed in the innate kind of uh, depravity of mankind. And you can read into this as much as you... You can read into this as much or as little as you like, but I think it does lend a certain cynicism to to your outlook. And Gilray's siblings also died. So he grows up as this kind of only child who's had this quite focused education and also perhaps quite a cynical one. And one where he's, you know, always looking at kind of the, the weakness or the faults in people rather than their strengths. And you can see how that might play out in, in his work later. But anyway, he grows up and he becomes he becomes an artist in in London. You know, he goes to the Royal Academy schools, and he he sets out to try and become a grand painter. You know, painting in the grand manner of Reynolds. We have cards that exist, trade cards, where he's named as Gilray Portrait Painter. So it's obviously not his first setup. It's not his first plan to become a caricaturist. I think it was very difficult at the time to become a big painter. You know, you had to kind of have your big break, which he didn't really ever get. But also perhaps, you know, they might have started doing prints on the side. If you were a student trying to make it big, you might have just done a few prints. It's good money, quick money. So I think he would have started doing that. And then it just became more and more evident that he wasn't going to be a big painter. And actually his prints were doing really well and he, they were a much more effective and lucrative way to to make a living. So that's what Gilray kind of, that's how he kind of ends up being an artist. But I mean, people say in general, he was a very amiable man. I think sometimes people say he's quite, you know, he is quite quiet. He's quite reserved. He's a kind of mysterious man. He sort of keeps himself to himself, but it's hard to know really. There's so few accounts of him um, that, that you have to speculate quite a lot, but a very pleasant um, kind of not like the life and soul of the party at all, but a very you know considered man and someone who I mean people really couldn't tell what he you know where he was thinking why he you know whether he believed in these these ideas that he was he was making these prints about or whether it was it was just um, you know he kept his thoughts to himself regarding his art. Who knows? But um, I mean, it's completely different to Rowlandson, who was the life and soul of the party, loved gossip, um, you know, had these two other friends and they called themselves the Three Jolly Dogs. And they just like roamed around London drinking, just like gambling. There's this episode where Rowlandson gambles like 38 hours worth of gambling and he just loses his fortune, things like that. So, you know, he does everything to the full um, and people people always record you know, their, their recollections of Rowlandson is that he 
he just loves gossiping about people and he loves stories about people and he loves them even if they're not true and he loves telling them and you know so he's a very different kind of side of the story um but and, and I think you can kind of see that in their in their art but what's interesting about Gilray is that he's quite similar to lots of cartoonists today you know if you know political cartoonists they're kind of quite introspective perhaps kind of keep themselves to themselves a bit so I sort of see that that link over time I think I mean, we won't go into their, their full life stories because people, that's why you need to go and buy the book. <laughs> Amazon is your friend right now. Um, but do listen to the rest of this episode before you go and do that, for sure. Um, but I do want to discuss Mrs. Humphrey because yeah. we, we always talk about the blokes, don't we? Um, and I do sometimes get a bit frustrated about the fact that, you know, Mrs. Humphrey being the most prolific um, in terms of the the owners of, of establishments selling caricatures, um, ends up sort of being pushed to the side. You know, she's mentioned, but nobody ever really sort of drills down into what she was like as a person. So what do we know about how she sort of ends up in this business and why she establishes such a strong connection, particularly with Gilray? So Hannah Humphrey, if you were making a movie about this, Hannah Humphrey would be the main character and she would be like the Simon Cowell figure right in the middle and she manages all of these troublesome artists who can't like manage their own affairs. Um, and she makes these names, you know, she makes the big names and she, because she's at the front of the print shop talking to all the customers, you know, talking to people like Charles Fox or members of the royal family I mean she's doing the hard selling at the end of the day and she's the one that is allowing them to make these prints so I think Hannah Humphrey deserves a lot of credit um the problem is of course and maybe this is a problem with women throughout history is that we really don't have any accounts of her there's um one image of that Gilray makes which we think might be of her she's this kind of old bespectacled woman um and people do refer to her as old mother Humphrey who was very kind and sweet and all something you know things like that so I think people are generally quite fond of her but um yeah I mean she she would have been the one managing the shops and how did she end up there well she she was part of a family who dealt in prints one of her one of her siblings um traded in shells <laughs> as like a luxury item um and so you know they're, they're all trading all her siblings are kind of trading in these luxury goods they're quite an impressive little set actually and Hannah Humphrey ends up starting her own print shop which I think you know we never really think of women doing things like that in the 18th century but there are actually quite a few women in 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 print shops in London at that time and Hannah um you know we from all accounts, she did very well from this, from her, uh, when she died, she leaves quite a lot of money and she leaves a huge collection and a very well-established business. So she was a very successful woman. Her relationship with Gilray is interesting because she, so she commissions Gilray a lot, but then there's a point where Gilray starts to live with her. So in the 1790s, he's living above her print shop. And then obviously there's loads of you know one you know people are thinking what's going on here is there actually are they is there a bit of a, a relationship going on um and we know according to one account there is a point where they do go to go and get married and then on the on the door of the church Gilray says actually Miss Humphreys this is a bad idea we're happy enough as it is let's just go home <laughs> and then they just go home so then it never happens but you know, it's um, it's so you kind of wonder what their relationship was. It was definitely one of great fondness, and we know that. Um, I mean, Hannah Humphrey was older than Gilray. She was quite a few years older, so she's kind of a motherly figure as well in some ways. Um, and when Gilray, you know, he goes through this period of decline in the last few years of his life, and Hannah Humphrey really looks after him. She keeps he lives upstairs above her shop for for out throughout his life. Um, or in the later decades of his life so certainly it was a very close relationship and and then you know that makes you think well how are they commissioning these prints you know it, it wouldn't have been such a straightforward relationship because you know he was living in her house and you think it would have been much more fluid than that and they would have been talking all the time and you know working on it together basically there's there's points when she's sometimes referred to as Mrs Gilroy um, so so you know, in interesting. Who knows what happened, what happened there? But if you made a movie, of course, you could like speculate all you wanted and add all this little drama and all this intrigue. But because it's not, you know, it's not explicitly said in any historical sources, it's hard to, it's hard to write about in a book. 
do we need more drama than these caricatures <laughs> generate? Um, I think we've, we've got all the drama that Hollywood could possibly hope for and more, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, I love I love that. The, the, the whole kind of thank you for just shining a light on her because it's always angered me. Angered is perhaps slightly strong, but, you know, we've needed more on mm. on her and her life. Um, yeah. She is genuinely a fascinating individual i want to pick up on something that you you talked about earlier which is that these days there's a sort of assumption a misconception that there's a, a certain stigma you know these are pornographic in nature and they're, they're low class humor and it's all about the toilet jokes and believe me folks yes the toilet jokes are there but it's not just about the toilet jokes at the time amongst contemporaries is there a kind of stigma attached to them because of the fact that it, it there's the the buttock element is always very sort of prominent um and also you know these are poking fun at authority in a time when you've got these sort of rifts opening up in terms of how do you view authority figures um and of course they're they're embellishments right part of what is so beautiful about them is that they're inverted commas grotesque representations in the sense of they take the little things and then amplify them mm -hmm. in order to make these images, whether, I mean, the obvious one, of course, being Napoleon in um, Plum Pudding in Danger, being about two feet high versus Pitt, who's utterly emaciated. You know, so is there this kind of, this sense by some that, oh, well, you, you don't really want a caricature, really. And if you're going to buy a caricature, then really you need to sort of hide it away and it should only come out on special occasions. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously... You've, when you think of Georgian high society, you think you don't think of them laughing at jokes like that. You think of them talking as they do in Pride and Prejudice or, you know, whatever adaptation. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> talking about how much each other. Yeah. So but I think actually that's the mistake there is how we have made the mistake of perceiving Georgian society and what Georgian society is like. Um and actually it was, I think, I think these prints, you can basically look at these prints and see them as a reflection of what humor was like at the time. So this would have been considered, these were the jokes at the time, and this was the kind of humor. And perhaps, you know, it was looked down at by some, but we know that members of the royal family had these prints. We know that, you know, Charles James Fox goes into a print shop with Hannah Humphrey there, sees a really damning print of him and then buys it and then walks out and like chuckles on his way. So um, I think I think it's more of a it's more revealing of what humour was like at the time. Yeah, I mean, you make a, a very good point. You know, these are there's no oh, Mr. Darcy about about these prints, is there? Um, but I mean, this kind of taps into the, the title of the book, you know, Uproar. Um, and I've got to say, I love the way that the cover just kind of gets louder as you say mm. the word uproar. I kind yeah. of feel as though every time somebody says the name of the book, they should sort of shout it. <laughs> I don't know if that was deliberate. Um, but this is scandalous. You know, part of the reason, and we touched on this earlier, part of the reason that these prints are so good is that they've got the material with them. Um, and there is this sense that these are, obviously they're not reflections of society because they're embellishments and they're exaggerations to create the humour. But for me, if you want a, a contrasting window, okay, if you want an indication of the ideals of Georgian society, Pride and Prejudice is a nice place to start. If you want to see the sort of grittier, slightly sort of... In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sort of, I don't know, non-rose-tinted perspective on society. Start with your caricatures and then find something somewhere in the middle. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that I've kind of argued in the book, that this is an insight, a rare insight in history that we don't often get into, you know, quite a an honest view of not only everyday life, but I suppose the real way that people, that real people were living. And, you know, I talked about Reynolds earlier, but you can make some direct comparisons with with great art, you know, and Pride and Prejudice kind of style art. Say you take a painting of George the Fourth, you know, and there's paintings of George Fourth, and he's he's being pretty noble, and he's looking, you know, his skin's been retouched, and his waist probably been brought in quite a bit, and he's he's looking like a bit of a hero. I mean, those are the paint, the portraits, the official portraits of George the Fourth. Now we know from historians' accounts and also from people of the day that that couldn't have been further from the truth. And he was this abhorrent character by all accounts who was very lazy, gluttonous, who um, very indulgent and had absolutely no friends. So, you know, why has, you know, we've been looking at these, we often look at the Georgian age through these portraits by people like Reynolds and Sophony. Um, and these kind of grand portraits, which are very flattering, but they're not true. They're fictions. They are, um, they are photoshopped. They are, they've got Instagram filters on. And Gilray doesn't do that. So if you compare the the Gilray version of George the Fourth, which is one of the best Gilrays, I think it's called a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. And in the very center of the print is a grand, is a great sphere, is a big like orb. And what is this orb? The thing that the print focuses on, the stomach, the tummy of the Prince Regent. It's this enormous tummy, and that's the center of the the image. And then his, his the rest of his body stretches out in this Hogarthian kind of recline and he's there you know there's he's there in his like new rooms of Carlton House and he's um you know there's bones lying around of the last chunk of meat last hunk of meat that he's just devoured there's empty bottles rolling around the floor um there's an overflowing chamber pot there's his unpaid bills um gambling debts kind of doctor's medication his coat of arms has been updated with the thing that he holds most dear, a knife and fork. And there's the remains of Carlton House in the background that uh, that are yet to be built. So, you know, this is a much more honest take on on uh, on this character. And you can directly compare, you know, compare the two. But I think it's much more honest. It's much more real. It's not photoshopped. It's raw. It's gritty. It's true. And that's why they're so good. And that's why they're so valuable as sources for, for any aspect of Georgian life. They can tell you something that great paintings will never tell you. I mean, this immediately taps into something that I was going to save till later, but we're, we're on the topic now, so we must talk about it. And that's propaganda. Mm. You know, people have in the past, and I see this quite a lot. I saw it on social media recently. Somebody had posted plum pudding in danger and then captioned it. He's a great example of British propaganda during the period, which kind of misses the point, as you've just said, that portraits are examples of propaganda. What is the David of Napoleon, if not propaganda? You know, mm-hmm. they're astride his, his charger as opposed to sort of traipsing across the Alps on a donkey, as reality was. You know, so, you know, <laughs> to turn around and go, oh, well, that's propaganda kind of misses the point yeah. that all images that get commissioned have a propaganda element to them. But when it comes to caricatures, it, I always feel it's a bit more complicated than that because, and admittedly, until a few years ago, I wasn't aware that Gilroy was taking money from the British government to produce certain prints. Um, but the counter to that is that he himself said that if you couldn't produce something that tapped into the public mood, it was never going to sell, which was ultimately the point of these images. So what's your take on the whole question of do they reflect the public mood or are they telling the public what to think? It's really hard to tell. Um, it's it's something that historians have tried to get to the bottom of, not only, you know, in recent years, but in the Victorian age, they got really angry that these they realised that Gilray had been taking payments and they saw that as a real betrayal of his own morals, you know, with absolutely no basis, really. But um, it's it's hard to tell, you know, 
yeah, so Gilray was paid at certain points, but I think, and he was paid by the Pitt government in the moments of, of I think, highest tension. So when, you know, there were threats, Napoleon was on the rise and there were threats of Napoleonic invasion. So sort of, you know, at the turn of the century. And, but that, uh, the problem with that is that it's, it makes people think, oh, right, okay, so he was just paid and he just did it because he was being paid. I mean, that was only at, very, at one point of his long career or, you know, his three-decade-long career. And there were many years when he wasn't paid or he was paid perhaps by the other side. We know Rowlandson was paid at one point by the Prince Regent during the Regency crisis to portray himself to, to pay, portray himself as a good person to take over from the king. Of course, Rowlandson did do did create some work for him, but then, you know, a week later was also creating something against him. So I suppose the question is, were they were they just putting bread on the table as some, you know, Martin Rosen wrote about that, that they're they probably just doing these satires to, you know, make money. And they were just, perhaps they just did whatever they needed to do to make money. Or were these a reflection of their own beliefs? I mean, I don't know how you would know. I think it's probably a mixture of all sorts of things. Sometimes they believe in them. Sometimes they just thought, oh, whatever, I'll just do a pit, I'll do a pit satter, fine. I'll do one against him next week. Um, but I think, were they, yeah, it's interesting. Like, were they reflecting society or were they, you know, or were they influencing society? Again, I think it's a total mixture and every single print you can look at is completely different. Um, I think, you know, there are episodes where you can definitely tell certain things. So, for example, you know, with 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 Napoleon, say, they created this character of Little Boney. And that's not something that um, that very much was something which they created and that influenced society. And that, you know, that was the kind of the starting point for something else rather than having been a result of, you know, what the public were thinking. Um because you know they created this character and that character became more fo- more famous or people are more familiar with little boney than they are with napoleon in some cases you know today probably people's first thoughts about napoleon is he short um, which we know isn't true so uh, but then you know there are other cases where people it's really hard to say it's a mixture um in in the Marianne Clark affair of 1809 which is a big kind of sex scandal in some ways there are so many satires created. Like they made a whole book of the satires created from that very affair. And so the re- the way that there are so many created then makes you think that they were probably really profitable because why would they keep making more and more satires? And I think perhaps they probably realized that the public loved them and just wanted more and more and more and just keep churning them out. And so perhaps that's more of a reaction to what the public wanted and just selling, you know, making a profit from them. So... I don't know. I mean, the other thing to think to bring into mind is, you know, Gilray might have been making satires for, you know, to create patriotic uh, feeling, you know, British liberty versus French slavery kind of ideas. But, you know, this was a very tense time. And although Gilray was a satirist, he was also a civilian and he was also part of everyone else you know he was also feeling the things that everyone else was feeling so it was a very tense time and I think their personal feelings about things would have would have played into it as well (laughs) I know that's not a very helpful defining answer but it's really hard to tell and that's what makes it so exciting because you know you can argue all sorts of things about each of them Um, it's not a definitive one way or the other because it's history and there never are definitives (laughs) one way or the other it's just a historian's answer you know we we sit on the fence (laughs) Sometimes we get splinters in our buttocks, and quite frankly, Gary would have done a brilliant caricature on precisely that issue. Um, <laughs> you talk about the Marianne Clark affair, which mm. is a brilliant one for me. I remember uh, this was quite a while ago now, but I was doing this research. But I was looking at caricatures on the Peninsula War, and it was one of those moments where you get a real kind of, I guess, reality check as a historian because you think, oh, the Peninsula War—it's in the press. You know, everybody's, you know, just on tenterhooks waiting for the latest news and there's there's evidence of that in the papers and then you look at what the caricatures um focus on and you've got a few in 1808 and then you get to 1809 and the number of caricatures on the napoleonic wars writ large just drops through the floor for one very simple reason the mary ann clark scandal nobody cares 
everybody <laughs> is so much more focused on the Duke of York and his mistress. And, you know, were was did money exchange hands and favours for commissions in the army and all the rest of it? Nobody gives a monkeys about what's actually happening in the army. <laughs> they just want to poke fun at the Duke of York, which I think is massively revealing in terms of that focus on society, which I suppose leads us to um, perhaps an inevitable answer on this next one, which is what kind of seemed to sell best in your opinion? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, you've sort of just explained it in some ways in that whatever was the, the you know, whatever was the kind of the flavor of the moment, um, you know, because although I would, I would probably say, you know, like anything that's very gossipy, people loved, or the, but then there were some very, very tense moments in, in in this period say napoleon's threats of invasion and i think at that point the kind of patriotic cartoons or image um, satires we should say were very popular and people did want to see that but i mean i think anything that really did kind of lampoon anyone in power um whether it's the prince regents whether it's the king whether it's celebrities i think people just loved laughing at, at you know seeing things like george the third eating a boiled egg at breakfast people would have found that really funny um it's almost like you know seeing photographs of celebrities kind of being papped and them doing something quite embarrassing it's like really funny I mean I think the kind of the probably something that was sort of captured captured that in modern year modern in modern times was you know when Matt Hancock was caught kissing on CCTV and I think that's kind of how people might have looked at some of the Gilray prints um but also it did it was important for people to see these kind of gossipy things because on a very kind of subtle way, it did release some tension, some tension, I think you could say, you know, it kind of gave people a place to air their grievances about, you know, the Prince Regent just building this enormous house, Carlton House, wasting loads and loads and loads of money. And then if you see a kind of really slanderous print of him doing something outrageous, like, although it doesn't really make a difference, it does sort of make you, it does ease a bit of tension, I think. So you know, gossip was was useful and important in some ways as well. <laughs> and also, you can't control what people think, you know? If people are saying these things anyway, does a caricature really encourage that? I suppose in some senses it makes it more, inverted commas, mainstream, and it gives people that sense of um, greater kind of agency and that, look, my what I'm saying and what I'm saying to my mates down the pub is actually reflected more widely. Yeah. But it raises this question of sort of red lines, doesn't it? And there's there's one that I'm, I'm trying to remember the details and this is appalling that I can't, but I'm pretty sure there was a print of somebody um, passing wind, shall we say, let's be delicate about this, <laughs> passing wind in the face of a portrait of the king. And I've got a feeling that this created a, a big kind of, I mean, to use the, the word from your book, uproar, right? Mm -hmm. um, Am I right in thinking that there was this whole kind of censorship debacle around that? Or am I slightly losing the plot? Um, well, there are episodes where the prints are certainly censored. So Britain at this time, in general, is much more free than other countries in terms of being able to print whatever you want. And people, well, foreign visitors were shocked at what was printed in on St. James's Street opposite St. James's Palace. You know, the fact that there would be a print of the king and he would walk out of his palace and he would see these prints. And that was um that was pretty shocking to the visitors at the time so in general it's a much more freer place to print and you know in in france they weren't they just weren't allowed to they just wouldn't stand for that kind of kind of image but there was a point after the french revolution in a period where people called it pitt's reign of terror where they really clamped down on seditious material um and so some of the printmakers and some of the print shop owners were arrested and you know, for 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 what for printing what was considered encouraging radical ideas, which could you know encourage French Revolution 2.0 in Britain. So there was a big fear of that at the time, and they were thrown into into prison. The problem was that they were all put in the same prison and um, <laughs> became a kind of hub of all the radicals together talking about all these things. So, and I think they still they still <laughs> they were still making prints from inside prison. So I don't know if that really worked, but um, yeah. So there was definitely a line at that point. There was even a point when Gilray was arrested. Um, but then it turned out that 
the magistrate in charge was just like really got he was just really chaotic and actually they were like sorry we got that wrong so he wasn't actually in the end but it's definitely something to think about in the 1790s that um you know they were they were risk they, they you couldn't you couldn't be too um kind of you couldn't be too radical in the images because there was that risk that, that you would there would be a clamp down so it's worth bearing that in mind when you know they basically didn't have the option to to do anything but be quite patriotic about things i also want to spend a bit of time talking about the sort of the beauty behind these prints and the art form behind it because we talk a lot about meaning and i think in the process you sort of forget the process itself because these are complex things to make. And admittedly, I'm not even remotely artistic in my nature. Um, if I try and draw anything and attempt to go beyond stick people, um, <laughs> it does look as though I haven't progressed since I was about four. Um, no, I don't believe it. <laughs> do believe it. Um, there isn't much evidence of it for a very good reason, but it's absolutely true. Um, but these are these are there's an incredible process behind this, right? Because there's the original kind of draft sketch, which doesn't look much like the the, the final product because you, you can kind of see the the vague kind of thought process behind it, but it's a rough sketch. It's not the final thing. Then there's this whole kind of process of transferring them onto copper plates, um, the use of acid to kind of create that engraving. But then you've also got you know, sort of inverted commas, cruder in terms of creation processes, prints like woodcuts, um, which work very differently. There's also a problem here that copper plates wear out. So if you're going to do a second run, you've got to make sure that you either get the transfer right or do you do a whole kind of second edition, <laughs> inverted commas. So talk us through this whole thing. It's it's fascinated me for years. Yeah, it's really complicated. And I actually went to do a printing course in Common Garden to work it out because I just couldn't like I couldn't really work out, you know, how difficult all of these processes were. And that was really useful. So the way that someone like Gilray would have would have made his prints, he often he, you know, they all what you got to remember with all of these artists is they lived in central London in a, with about five, 10 minutes walk from each other. So they're always really close to each other. Um, and it's between kind of Piccadilly and Strand and Bond Street. So that kind of area. So um, and, and that's where all the print shops are, too. So obviously that's very close to Westminster and all of the St. James's clubs and where all of the politicians would be in all the coffee houses and things. Um, so they would have been able to sketch the the actual victims if you like you know Pitt they would have sketched him and they could have seen these people making speeches they could have seen them going to White's club and they could have seen them in, in real life so you know lots of the 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 subject matter that they made they could see and, and they just worked from from what was around them and I think they would have made lots of sketches um Gilray in some of the the notes of Gilray's he adds little details like white hair or you know like curly hair so he's he's making notes to himself and then he would have gone back, sometimes gone back very quickly if it was a breaking news event and they wanted to turn it around for the next day or something. And I think, you know, it's hard to know quite how they would have transferred their design onto the the acid, uh, sorry, onto the metal plate or we don't know but there are, you know, some of them they have kind of grid lines on the drawings as if they would have measured it across. But what they did is that somehow they got this design onto a metal plate. And this would have been perhaps A4, A3 sort of size. And the metal plate was, they would have used all these different kinds of tools, these metal tools, and they would have scraped off different areas of the surface. And some of these were thick lines. Um, sometimes these tools had these kind of <laughs> implements on the end, which would create this kind of dotted pattern. Um, or sometimes they would do cross hatching or sometimes really thin wispy lines. So there's all these kind of different lines they can use in different ways to make texture and layers and that sort of thing. And then they would ink up the plate and then they would put um, they put the plate face up with the design face up. And then they put a, a, a kind of wet piece of paper on top and then they would push it in with a roller and that and then they would lift it up and then they would have the plate. Uh, they would have a black and white print. Now, another way that you can make that kind of image is you can use a chemical process, which is where you have your metal plate and you put this kind of wax ground on the top of the metal plates, this kind of layer. And then you, you know, you mark out the design with your 
whatever tool you're using a burin or something and then you and then this is where you um you put this plate in an acid bath so you put it in acid for like five ten minutes you gotta be careful it you don't leave it in there for too long when you do this today when I did this on my course had to wear science goggles and things like that so it was quite funny and then you take it out and basically the bits where you've exposed the metal plate the acid has bitten in so the bits where you've left the wax ground has been left so that's and so then you scrape the wax ground off and then it leaves you can see where the ass is bitten into the plate and after that so either one of those two options you've got this metal plate with a design but you can you can add extra bits in afterwards when I did it, I had to keep adding bits in because it hadn't like worked well enough so there is some room for changing it but of course once you do change it you can't rub it out again so unfortunately when I did mine I gave Pitt a moustache <laughs> which he didn't have you know but you know there's, there's kind of errors like that and you have to remember that when it's printed it's you it's printed in reverse so if you're doing any writing you know or any any text you've got to do that in reverse which is pretty impressive and then so once so once you've got that you've got a black and white image so what happens next? Well, they would then color it according to, you know, perhaps the artist would color it, perhaps someone else would color it according to the artist's instructions. The metal plates would only last so long. So they might last for perhaps 200 or 300 repetitions. It depends what, it depends how fine the lines are, depends how well it's been created. And so there is a limited print run. But um, it's interesting because sometimes later in Ronanson's life, he's brought in by other publishers to kind of recreate some of his own images. There are others that are kind of, you know, we know that people are copying Gilray's prints, but he just kind of bats it off because he knew that they were never going to be as good. Um, but what's interesting is that sometimes when the artists die, the metal plates are bought by other publishers and other print sell print shops so that they can try and, you know, like get a few more prints out of these old Gilray plates. Um, and so what that means is that then, you know, someone else is colouring them to their own design. And so that's why today you might look at a plum pudding, um, a plum pudding print or any of the prints and you're it's confusing why there's loads of different colour schemes. And that's because other people could have chosen to, you know, colour them in their own ways at different points. And so then. So yeah, so that is how you have, that's how you end up with a print. And there's a really good little way to get some extra information from these prints because in the bottom corners, they often have um, a bit of information which tells you the date that it was created, the who published it, who created it. Sometimes it can tell you, you know, who came up with the idea, if it was created, if it was paid for. And it's got this little, little it's got this little code of, of, of uh, you know, kind of meaning. So that can be really, really helpful to look at. But it's a quite intensive process. It was quite hard work for me to do a little print that was kind of quarter A4. Um, and that took about a day. So I think obviously they would have got the hang of it. They were taught these skills at the Royal Academy schools. So they were really, really good at their craft. They were absolutely experts, but they... Um, you know, I, I bet they would have been really quick. When you think about them getting a bit of breaking news, you know, running back, <laughs> getting it done. In fact, there's actually a story about Gilray where he, it's, who knows if it's true, but that he, there was this guy who had commissioned a print from him and then I think it was like 4 p.m. that day and he was, he came over and he was like, this is ridiculous, you're never going to get done. Like, how, what, how on earth would you do it? And then of course, within a few hours, Gilray had turned it around, designed it, you know, the acid had bitten in and he'd, he'd made all these prints and, and then it ends with something like, and they all went to have drinks at the employer's expense. <laughs> and then, you know, so it's like, well, it's, 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 um, it's a fun story. But yes, yeah, so busy, busy process and quite intense and quite, you know, I suppose there's a lot of variables to it. So it can change in, in all sorts of different ways. But hopefully, Zach, that gives you a, a taster and then you can go away and uh, start making your own prints. <laughs> I don't think there's a market for sort of stickmen knockoffs of Valley of the Shadow of Death and Plum Pudding in Danger. Um, it, it's just not going to happen. It, I mean, you make a, a really good point that there is this whole European market, right? And it was something mm -hmm. that flummoxed me initially when I, I looked at something and, and went, but well, that looks exactly like the Valley of the Shadow of Death, but it's it's nowhere near as good. Oh, it's not it's not Gilray. That's why it's it's a cheap knockoff. Um, and it's it's a that I think is really telling that you know these aren't just prints that have a a value within the UK. Some of them translate so well 
that you can reinscribe them in a different language. I think the um, Napoleon fighting the Spanish bull is one of those as well that ends up being reproduced. Um, yeah, and the Germans. Have... Sorry, yeah, and the Germans love the Germans love Gilray prints, and they loved. They had this magazine, um, London and Paris, where they would have all the reports of all, not just like the prints that were made, but what Hannah Humphrey was up to. And it's like, oh, Hannah Humphrey's run out of prints. <laughs> you know, like all the, the latest from London print shops. But, and there's funny accounts of the fact that the Germans really enjoyed them, even though there's no way they could have possibly understood the jokes. <laughs> and in so doing, we completely blow apart the myth that the Germans don't have a sense of humour. There we go. <laughs> Public service announcement from the Napoleonic Wars podcast. I want to wrap this up, if we may. We could talk all day, but you know, you're, you're a busy individual. You've got a life to be getting on with. Um, so I just want to wrap it up with sort of a quick fire round on some of the images, because that is the beauty of this. And this is something that people are really going to enjoy in the book, that you can look at these prints and start to get an appreciation of why they're such a great medium and why you'd want to write a book and why you're going to need to go and read this book. So just really kind of quickly, what's the funniest caricature? So the funniest character, in my opinion, is one that I really like, and it just captures the folly and foible of ordinary life. And it's called The Advantages of Wearing Muslin Dresses. And it's just a lady sitting, having tea, and her something's happened, like a poke has fallen on her dress from the fire, and suddenly the bottom of her dress is on fire. And this scene that should be perfectly, you know, civilised has just erupted into chaos, into uproar, if you like. <laughs> Nice. I, I like the connection there. Slickly done. <laughs> What's the most accurate representation of someone's caricature that you've seen? So I think the George the Fourth. So I think the George the Fourth one we described uh, of luxury under the horrors of digestion just absolutely nails his character and his many flaws. Who was the best caricaturist of the age? It has to be James Gilray. That's the correct answer. Not that there are <laughs> any correct answers in history, but that is the correct answer. And finally, what is your all-time favourite caricature? So I have thought about this a lot, and there are so many you could choose from, but although there are some which I think are really brilliant and really clever, I would have to say the plum pudding in danger because I think it so effectively, because it's, you know, it so effectively shows how brilliant those prints were at the time um, and how relevant they are today, the way that the plum pudding is used again and again and again in political cartoons today, on the covers of The Spectator, in the in the papers, you know, it, it's just how many times can they use it? Probably infinitely. So I think that really just shows quite how effective and powerful those prints were. I, I have to agree. I mean, Valley of the Shadow of Death comes in a, a close second for me, <laughs> but Plum pudding in danger is just spectacular. It's it's exactly that kind of thing of the more you look, the more sort of little digs and subtle messages are in there. I particularly like this idea, and I don't know if it's just me reading too much into it, but you've got Napoleon who's there carving off his sort of little slice of the pudding that's labelled Europe. Mm. And it's a very small slice of the pudding, whilst Pitt just sits there and he's casually just carving off <laughs> half of the entire globe. Yeah. And it, it just really says a lot, to me at least, about kind of British strategic thinking during this period. Mm. And that people know that yeah, Napoleon can can go after Europe, but you know, we're, we're seeing the bigger picture here in Britain. I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but that's that's No, you're how not. I, I mean I think you can always read into them so much more. You know, that's the whole point is that you should read into them in every single way you can, because that's kind of what they would have been doing. Alice, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Folks, <laughs> go and buy Uproar. All you're going to need to do is type Uproar into Amazon. It's going to be, in fact, you probably type into Google and you'll find it. OK, <laughs> um, Uproar is on sale March 1st, I believe. It's on so sale the 2nd of March. 2nd of, of March and you can follow if you follow me on at history underscore Alice on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, then you'll see all, all the latest excitements. <laughs> Folks, make sure you go and buy this. It's going to be a belter of a book. It's very hotly anticipated. <laughs> Alice, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, Zach. Hello, folks. If you're new here, remember to whack that subscribe button so that you can find your way back easily. If you're a fan of the period, you can immerse yourself in a Napoleonic Wars pod universe, full of exclusive bonus episodes, a Discord server to chat with the wider Napoleonic enthusiast community, we're not an odd bunch, I promise you, plus socials, the chance to request episodes, and even a course on the period. 
have a, head over to Patreon, the link is in the description, to find out more. Shoutouts to my mentioned in dispatches. Patrons Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kemble, and Gary Dennis. The Admirals, David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, there's only one, quite aptly, and that's JC Kaiser. And the Legions de Scholar, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.